It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Dominic Raab, the UK's foreign secretary, has faced serious questions this week about why the country was not better prepared for the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan. From the UK, the US through NATO allies, and indeed the Taliban and many ordinary Afghans themselves uh, were surprised by the pace of events. Of course, we need to learn the lessons. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. This week, we'll be examining how the UK got its withdrawal from Afghanistan so badly wrong and look at the Whitehall briefing war against the Foreign Office. Robert Shrimsley, our chief political commentator, will be analysing along with Laura Hughes, political and diplomatic correspondent. And later, we'll be looking at the UK's secret contingency planning for what would happen to its nuclear deterrent in the event of Scottish independence. Would the tried submarines move to the south coast, America, France or stay where they are? Our Scotland correspondent Muir Dickey will explore with special guest Chris Brannigan, the Prime Minister's former defence advisor and a senior fellow at the Policy Exchange Think Tank. First, Robert and Laura, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Seb. Hello. Laura, welcome back. It's been probably a good year since you've joined us on Payne's Politics. You've been on maternity leave. How was it taking a whole year out of Westminster and has it changed your views on anything, your perspective on the news? It was absolutely marvellous to consume the news just as a a normal member of the public. And actually, it does change your perspective because you realise what really does cut through to people. I wasn't looking for news. I sort of let news reach me and actually the things we agonize over sometimes <laughs> I don't think they really are enjoyed by most of the most of the population I'm sure that's very true and um, you haven't had to follow the ups and downs of the subsequent lockdowns and I remember just before you went on maternity leave you're like it was when we weren't in the office and you're like I'll see you guys in a year's time and we went through all that joyful time let's slide on to our main topic of the week The West's ignominious withdrawal from Afghanistan has prompted some major questions about why countries weren't better prepared, especially the UK. Much of the blame has been portioned on the Foreign Office and the Foreign Secretary for not having a grip on the situation and also on the intelligence communities for not appreciating the Afghanistan threat. Dominic Raab, who went to Doha this week, said the UK would start engaging with the Taliban to help avert a further crisis in Afghanistan. We all want to avoid a humanitarian Uh, disaster or crisis. Uh, Well, that will require the Taliban to be able to provide and ensure a permissive uh, climate and environment for aid workers. Um, So I think engagement will be uh, important in order to set early tests. So Laura, let's begin on where this sort of briefing war has begun, because obviously the Ministry of Defence, the Foreign Office and the Home Office have all been involved in the UK's response to the withdrawal, which finally concluded at the weekend. But why has the FCDO come under particular scrutiny? Well, I think the Foreign Office and its new guys has 
particularly felt a lot of scrutiny is because clearly they've had officials on the ground in the country for the last 20 years. We've had an embassy. We've had officials there. The Foreign Office receives constant briefings. It's the job of diplomats to liaise with uh, the Americans, for example. And there's a lot of criticism as to why the Foreign Office in particular didn't see this coming, wasn't liaising with allies, why we haven't had people out around in the region making preparations for an evacuation, and the role of Dominic Raab himself, which is, I think, where a lot of this stems from, because, of course, we know he was on holiday when all of this unfolded. But we'll get into, I think, why perhaps it's not completely fair to just blame the Foreign Office. Well, Robert, I think obviously Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary, has sort of made some not so coded mentions in public about this. But behind the scene, lots of spads and Whitehall officials have been really portioning the blame on Mr. Raab and the Foreign Office for saying that, look, the Ministry of Defence was responsible for getting as many people out of Afghanistan as possible. Yet the Foreign Office actually wants to leave sooner and the, the MOD has to say, you guys need to stay here. And then when it comes to the intelligence about what was going to happen as the withdrawal began, that is something that the Foreign Office has to take responsibility for. What do you think? What we can see is a massive failure of communication coordination within the British government, let alone on the ground in Afghanistan and with um, the UK's natural allies. And what we're seeing, I think, in some part, is the fury of people who feel powerless. And in British government, in British politics and Conservative MPs, who thought that the UK occupied one position and find it occupied another. But there, there clearly was a huge failure of communication between the UK and the US to understand the precipitate nature of the, the US withdrawal. That they were withdrawing, everybody understood, but the way they were withdrawing was not perhaps communicated fully and the consequences of that. And then a, a failure to understand what was going to happen in Afghanistan once the US did withdraw. And the blame has to lie primarily with uh, the Foreign Office because it's their job to understand these things. Now, of course, you could say the MOD is closer to the ground, but what fundamentally comes through is people not talking to each other, people not communicating, and people not sort of reading the runes, reading the messages and understanding how this was playing out. And then you throw into that mix Dominic Robb being away and tensions between himself and his own civil servants in the Foreign Office. And it makes the Foreign Office very vulnerable. You know, Ben while, while Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary, was able to go on the radio and talk quite emotion, television, talk quite emotionally about the need to get his people out. Dominic Raab was still in Crete, and that was a problem, and that's made him and the Foreign Office both vulnerable. I've, I've really looked into this week, coming back fresh, how did we get this so wrong? And what I've established that is that if the Whitehall machine is working as it should, when something like this sort of situation happens, or we know, as we have known, that international troops are going to withdraw from a country that we have our own presence, the Joint Intelligence Committee's job is to gather intel, military intelligence, intelligence from the SIS, from all the different government departments. It draws all of that information together into one central assessment. And, and that's what Dominic Raab keeps pointing to. He keeps saying, look, Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary, and I have all been working off the same assumptions that were presented to us. So normally you have this one central report, which then would be presented to the National Security Council, mm. which is chaired by the, by the Prime Minister. But there's a lot of criticism out there that what happened is this information might have been presented, but the National Security Council hasn't been doing its job 
which is to meet on a very regular basis with all the top spy, military chiefs and politicians. And their job is to come up with policy. And it's that lack of policy that we've seen over the last 18 months when we knew that troops would be withdrawn to plan effectively for the evacuation of eligible Afghans and our own UK nationals out there to liaise with the Americans. And it feels like there's been a complete breakdown. And actually, in a situation like this, you shouldn't have an internal Whitehall blame game because there should be one government coordinated policy Mm. that is led by the prime minister. And that doesn't seem to have happened. Now, Robert, what about Mr. Rob's personal role in all this? Because he was obviously on holiday and was told to come back by seeing people in Downing Street. And then that was vetoed by Boris Johnson, as we learned that he could actually stay away. I'm always a bit sceptical about these things, about saying ministers must come back, because, of course, as we know, government departments have junior ministers, they have holiday rotors like the rest of the world, they have scores of advisors and civil servants who actually do a lot of the work here. But it has fed this sense that Ben Wallace and the Ministry of Defence have had to get a grip on this because of that power vacuum from Mr. Raab and the Foreign Office. And in The Economist this week, there's a pretty excoriating attack on him for not being sort of really on top of it. What do you think about that? I think there are a couple of points, one of which is that Dominic Robb has acquired a reputation of being a bit of a control freak within the Foreign Office. And therefore, that is also disempowering for everyone when you're not there. I mean, I have to say, I mean, in the final days before the Taliban victory, I mean, literally, I, I remember with my wife, we were on hold as well, and we were driving down towards West Sussex and listening on the radio to accounts of, of you know, at each new town falling to the Taliban. And this was, I think, you know, Wednesday or th- Wednesday or Thursday. And we said to each other, you know, they're, they're going to be in Kabul within a couple of days. Now, this was just us listening to the world at one. Um, you have to say, where was Dominic Robb <clears throat> hearing these reports, listening to this and thinking, I ought to get back. And you're right, with secure communications, you can do an awful lot from wherever you are. But there is a, also, also a visible side to politics, a sense that you care enough to interrupt your holiday, that you recognise something is big enough that you have to be there in person. That's why you get the big job. That's why you get paid the big bucks. And that's where Dominic Robb's political antenna fell down. And I think it has made him more vulnerable in the long term. Not, not immediately. I don't think there's an immediate chance of him being removed as foreign secretary. But I think it's made him more removable. You know, we all know that there is a reshuffle due sometime in the next six months or so. He, and that it's a reshuffle often requires a, one of the big roles to be changed. He now looks, as a result of this, much more vulnerable than he might have done seven or eight months ago or even last year when he was you know, standing in for the prime minister. Um, when he was yeah. ill, he's made himself vulnerable by the errors of political judgment, even if, as you say, some of these are performative. I agree with that. And I think even before this crisis, there was a sense that Dominic Raab was not gelling well with Boris Johnson's inner team in Downing Street and moving him to a different department. We've reported that there was talk about maybe moving him to Justice Secretary while maintaining the de facto Deputy Prime Minister title because it would unlock um, someone to move up to one of those big jobs and then more cabinet positions to open. It still feels like that ratio was probably going to be at the tail end of this year or the beginning of next year. But Law, where do you think this goes next in terms of the Afghanistan story? Because we've withdrawn, we've got as many people out as possible. It was reported this week that we are now engaging with the Taliban. You heard Mr. Rob explain why earlier. What are going to be the immediate fruits of that? Is it to try and get more people out? Is it to try and forge diplomatic relations? Yeah, I think it's all going to be about Britain's diplomatic push to try and have some sort of influence in the region. But already we can see that what's happened in this country is completely changing our foreign policy. So you've had Dominic Raab come out and already accept that the UK needs to start 
talking more with Russia and China because there is an acceptance that they could have a moderating influence in the region. I think we're playing catch up in diplomatic terms. The foreign secretary has been out in Qatar. He's expected to go to Pakistan over the last few days. And lots of people have been critical. Why wasn't he out there before? But we're going to really, I think, from the British perspective, see us working behind closed doors a lot more because actually the most plausible way we're going to see Kabul airport reopened in some capacity and kept safe is for the Qataris and the Turks to do some sort of deal with the Taliban. The Taliban, I don't think, are going to do a deal directly with us. And what we're doing is trying to influence those talks by talking to other countries, basically. The the sort of sad reality and, and something that MPs are reflecting on is that Britain's role as an individual country actually realistically is is pretty negligible we we don't have massive influence anyway we're trying desperately to work with nato the g7 but when it actually comes down to it it's going to be other countries who do proper negotiations with the taliban yes we are talking with them mm-hmm. but what what interest do the taliban have in helping us secure the safe passage of of uk nationals out of the country very very little it, it's really about us working with others and getting them to exert pressure on the Taliban and help us secure our kind of objectives of getting people out, which is definitely the the most immediate Mm. pressure and crisis facing the government. I was just going to add that I think this also highlights a bigger point, which is that the UK doesn't really have a coherent foreign policy at the moment. It has a set of foreign policy aspirations, but it doesn't have a clearly worked through strategy to deliver for Britain and Britain's commercial and strategic goals. The strategy out of Brexit was to move out of the orbit of European defence and security to be much closer to the Americans and play a bigger role in the Indo-Pacific region. The Indo-Pacific region part of this was always a little bit exaggerated because there's a limited amount of what we can actually do militarily. But it was an attempt to show America that we were in tune with their foreign policy concerns, which are obviously primarily China. The irony is America, particularly under Joe Biden, wants Britain playing a more active role within Europe, you know, managing its own theatre as one of the two major military powers in, in, in Western Europe. And the problem is the British government has shown it's not quite ready to work out strategies and, and structures to forge new defence and security relationship with the European Union and most importantly with France, where we have been cooperating with them in places like North Africa in the past. And I think what this has exposed is a rather hollow centre to all of the talk of global Britain, all of the aspirations that Britain has for a major play to be a major player in the world. And I think what it needs, what, what one hopes this will do, is lead to a reappraisal of where Britain's strengths and immediate interests are and a strategy to re-engage in those areas. I agree with that. And obviously we've just this comes off the back of the integrative review which came out in March. And that was meant to be this big document explaining what kind of role Britain could play in the world. And I think those who drew up the integrative review felt that this was whatever happened, this was going to be a very difficult moment because there's no easy way to draw from Afghanistan. Fundamentally, Laura, our hand was forced by this, that the UK made it quite clear it didn't want to withdraw troops entirely. You know, I think that Boris Johnson and Ben Wallace tried to persuade the Biden administration otherwise. They couldn't do that. They also tried to forge an alternative coalition. They couldn't do that either. And so you're left in this position where we're just following in the US's wake. And that's really the question that's going to have to be answered. And you would think there'd be some kind of reappraisal about this, particularly when it may come to future interventions in the future. Exactly. Or, or the, I mean, the main question really is, as well is, will there be 
great interventions over the next 20, 30, 40 years when America is making very clear that they're returning to a more isolationist policy within their own country. And where does that leave us? It's interesting, this question of whether or not the UK could have had a bigger role in trying to form some sort of coalition without the Americans to stay in Afghanistan and help support the National Afghan Army with humanitarian efforts. And Dominic Robb, when he was asked about this this week in front of a foreign affairs select committee, basically hit back that without the Americans, there's really no point. There was no point actually really pushing this argument because it's just not possible. And that's forcing a lot of conservatives, especially to really question whether or not the UK needs to take a slightly different approach to the Americans. Others argue the special relationship is, you know, runs a lot deeper than that. And our security is very much reliant on that relationship. But the reality is we, ha- we, we appear to have no real influence on American decision making when it came to the withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan. And that's, again, an indictment on our influence and our role in the world. And that is something that global Britain is going to have to seek to address. And of course, the great irony is that many say we haven't really had a foreign policy for the last five years and that we have just been focused on Brexit. And now emerging from this crisis, we are going to have to turn back to our European allies if we are going to have any sort of influence and if we're going to start joining and working with other countries. And it's it's just, Mm. it's a a massive question, especially Boris Johnson as the Prime Minister. We know, you know, he talks about international Britain and all of this, but what what does it really mean? Well, this last week or so has shown it doesn't mean a, a hell of a lot. Lauren Robert, thank you very much. What will happen to Trident, the UK's independent nuclear deterrent, if Scotland votes for independence in a future referendum? It was a question that was asked in 2014 during the last referendum, and this week the FT tried to give an answer to that. We revealed that secret planning had been done in Whitehall on the contingency for Scotland voting for independence and a new anti-nuclear state would form. The two bases at Fassane and Coolport on the west coast of Scotland is where Trident are based. Would they move would they go abroad? These are some of the questions that have been put forward and some of the answers officials have been put forward. But there's a hitch. The plan to keep Trident where it is, potentially as a new British overseas state, has been rejected by the SNP. Kirsten Oswald, the party's deputy leader in Westminster, insisted that this option, which has been dubbed a nuclear Gibraltar by some officials, isn't going to happen. But I have to say the notion of some kind of UK nuclear base remaining in Scotland when we are independent is an absolute non-starter. So uh, that that's neither realistic uh, nor something that is going to happen. Mew Dickey, it's great to have you back on the podcast. Let's just begin with the couple of options that have been put forward. And essentially our report in this, we said there were three. One is keeping the base where it is. And this is seen in Whitehall as maybe the most realistic one and said it's been dubbed the nuclear Gibraltar, leasing the land for a period. The second is to move the base somewhere else within England, but there are drawbacks with that. And the third will be to move it abroad. Yes, indeed. And from the Scottish perspective, this is obviously one of the issues that would come up after an independence vote uh, as a priority because it touches on the very fundamentals of uh, UK defence policy. The problem, I think, is um, even 
more difficult than it was in 2014 because since then the UK has decided to, to renew its Trident forces. The new submarines that will be brought into service in the early 2030s are supposed to run until 2060s. So if there was to be some form of arrangement of having a base for them, having the bases for them in Scotland, it would have to be a long-term one to have any meaning at all. And what's interesting in the SNP is not only just saying that would be unacceptable to Scotland, but they think that it wouldn't be acceptable to the UK. I mean, it would be a very strange situation to have a permanent extraterritorial basing of your fundamental nuclear forces. Well, Chris Brannigan, it's great to have you on the podcast as well. I'm sure this is something that may have come across your radar during the t- when you were working Downing Street with an eye on defence issues. Um, what do you make of those three options in the instance that there was an independence referendum? And if the SNP do hold to that line that Muir just discussed, saying that it wouldn't happen, you know, do you think it could move elsewhere in England? We've been told that Devonport on the south coast could be one option. Or is moving it to abroad feasible at all? I think, first of all, that as with, with any of these details, contingent planning is one of those things that, that happens all the time. And so therefore, you know, constantly looking at what the other options might be, I think is, uh, is a canny thing um, to, be, to be doing. Should it get to a stage whereby um, you know, Scottish independence occurs and there's this threat towards Fastlane and the way it would work out, I think the ripple effect of that single decision, if a newly independent Scotland decides that Fastlane is no longer viable and they don't wish to have nuclear submarines uh, based within the territory w- would have consequences both for the UK, for NATO, for Britain's role in the world. It, the ripple effect, I think, it is extraordinary, not, not least of which, in the very short term, is the effect it would have upon the UK defence budget. You know, relocating fast lane to somewhere else within the United Kingdom would it take the heart out of UK defence spending, certainly for years in advance. And that creates other vulnerabilities and allows other threats to prosper in a way that that may not have been anticipated. So the complex scenario that this creates and generates, I think is something that's sort of quite underexplored. It's about much more than just moving from base A to base B. Absolutely. And if you look at the recent integrated review into the UK's defence and security policy, one of the outcomes of that was actually increasing the UK's nuclear stockpile. So that shows how central it is to the future of what Britain's defence will will be after Brexit. Indeed. And I think that that's that's always been one of those understated elements of having our nuclear deterrent is, is what else it allows us and creates us and gives us influence globally in creating global security uh, in a way that is beyond more than just submarines and nuclear devices and and where it happens to be based. It's a geopolitical tool and it's important that it remains secure within within the UK's control. Now, let's just flip back to Scotland for a moment because, as we heard from Kirsten Oswald and from Stuart MacDonald, the SNP's defence spokesman, and all the people you've been speaking to this week, they're insisting that it would have to go, that that in the negotiations for Scotland to form an independent state outside the United Kingdom, as part of that, it would want the Fastlane and Coolport bases removed from the Clyde. But do you actually believe that if it came down to those negotiations, would it not just become a bargaining chip for all the other issues in terms of currency, debt pile, defence, foreign policy, borders, you name it? Well, it's certainly very important to to take the kind of um, pre-independence vote 
commentary from the Scottish government in this SNP with a certain pinch of salt, as indeed you would do with the pro-union parties, because everything changes once Scotland's decided to go. And there's no question that Scotland would want leverage in the negotiations over independence. If Brexit's taught us anything, that it's, it's, it's not easy for a smaller party to get all at once when it's leaving a union. And Scotland would have real negotiating challenges in, in achieving the, the best possible border arrangements, division of national debt or uh, creation of new uh, currency arrangements. There would be a lot of difficult issues in which, at first glance at least, the, the offer to host those uh, nuclear forces would be a potentially a strong chip to bargain with. I think though there is... It's important to sort of take a long-term view of this, whereas I think there would be quite a lot of negotiating room about how fast and perhaps the terms of a withdrawal of the Trident from Scotland in the event of independence. It would be difficult to to be sure that any agreement that came out of that post-referendum uh, negotiation would last for the life of the Trident forces. You know, so... Even if uh, Scotland was to agree some form of extraterritorial arrangement, you know, in, in five years, in 10 years, in 20 years, would that be politically acceptable to an independent Scotland? Uh, it's, it, that would be a gamble. I, I, was, I was about to say that I think in you know, the historical parallels that exist around this, it, it, looking at the arrangements in 1922 with the ports in Southern Ireland and Southwest Ireland, you know, what we're looking at is considering, as that negotiation occurred at the time, about how things always remain the same. But having an SNP equivalent of, of De Valera in a, in a moment of crisis jeopardises those sorts of arrangements, jeopardises those sorts of policies that have been put in place. And although we're dealing with the current leadership and the way that this might work, there's nothing to say that that couldn't be extraordinarily vulnerable and extremely volatile political situation um, in the future, in the way that we might not have anticipated. Absolutely disagree with that. I mean, sorry, I absolutely agree with that. The, I mean, the, the point with the Irish bases is just, just when the UK really needed them in the run-up to the Second World War, that was when they, they went back to Ireland. You know, would you want a situation like that uh, with, the, with your nuclear forces? And one of the points, I mean, the, the, some of the, the language that you've heard from within the, 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 the UK government about this, this idea of a nuclear Gibraltar, is it, pretty incendiary to Scottish sort of, certainly pro-independence nationalist sentiment, but also it, it's a, a bit of a mischaracterization. You know, Gibraltar has access to the ocean. It's a, it's a place that can exist uh, separately from Spain. Uh, you know, the, the, the bases uh, of the cloud are not like that. They are entirely surrounded by Scotland. There would be no way to operate them without the, the cooperation of a Scottish government. I think, Chris, the issue is practically that even if you could negotiate to have Trident based not on not within the United Kingdom, politically, how on earth would you get sort of consent from voters to be spending billions of pounds on this programme to have something that's based abroad? Because one, some of the people we spoke to said that one of the options in this contingency plan was looking at putting the submarines and the missile bases in France, which just seems a complete non-starter. You know, one minister described that to me as a political death warrant. So really, I think the place you would have to end up is the Trident would ultimately have to move to somewhere within the UK, even if it's not as safe, even if it is costly, and you would do some kind of sticking plaster situation to transition it out of the fast lane and cool port bases. 
No, I, I think that's right. I think that's, um, that what's important is you know, the amount of spend, uh, both the political spend, the spend of our you know, in domestic political capital and our international reputation would mean that we would end up facing some extraordinary costs. There was a report, I think, for some work we had done. We did some work at Policy Exchange uh, earlier this year looking at this. And, and I think we referred to a Commons Committee in about 2012, which highlighted how much this was going, this was going to go in cost. And, and one of the implications that we had drawn from all this is, you know, and, and this is at the expense of what? This is the expense of other political programmes within within the UK? Just expense of in an era when we're already spending extraordinary amounts of money, that we feel obliged that we've got to go and spend this in order to, to relocate to wherever else that that happens to be. You know, primarily probably down at Devonport. So the political capital that would be used on this would be phenomenal, to say nothing of the amount of national expenditure that we would incur. And finally, obviously, the, this story has a big political element as well as the practical defence side as well, because we know Boris Johnson is dead set against Scottish independence. As ministers have said, there will be no referendum until there is 60% support for a referendum, which I think is still some way off based on the current polls. But the fact this exercise is taking place deep within Whitehall does show that maybe unlike Brexit in 2016, when there were no preparations done, this is too much of a serious matter to lead to, for it to just go by the wayside. In fact, there are some preparations going on in the worst case scenario for independence. Well, that's something that uh, SNP politicians are, are, you know, very keen to to seize upon. I would say though that it's it's the responsibility of any defence establishment to consider all the possibilities. I think you know, we all. No, independence is a live issue. I don't think we should read too much into the UK states thinking through the potential implications. You know, it doesn't it doesn't mean they think it's going to happen right away. It would be irresponsible for them not to consider the possibility. But I think it does politically that does become difficult because clearly this sort of thinking was happening before 2014, but the government denied that it was because it didn't want to make independence look more uh, realistic. There would be a real cost to not preparing for independence if it was to happen. So I would, I would <laughs> you know, we, we, we can want and, and expect governments to consider all the possibilities, but we shouldn't expect them to be too honest about doing it. And finally, Chris, obviously Trident was renewed quite recently, as Mia mentioned, and basically any solution would have to go up to the 2060s. But in the event of Scotland leaving the UK, if there is an independence referendum and that goes through, do you think ultimately Trident would still be renewed after that? Would the UK remain a nuclear state? And then what would also that mean for its place in the permanent place on the UN Security Council and as a leading member of NATO? I think the, the integrated review you know, made clear that within the, the spectrum of challenge and threat that we face and the responses that we hold a responsibility to, to, to live up to means that the nuclear deterrent um, in its renewable form, or its current form, however it would, it would run on, is a fundamental part of all of that. It would be careless in the extreme for for the UK to think that we could only deal with a specific element of, of threat. And so therefore, I think, said that wherever the base ends up being or, or is planned to go and be, that that would continue to be part of our longer term thinking. The IR sets out a strategic review, uh, as many objective commentators say, you know, that is that is for once something that takes a long term view of who we are, where we should be and what we should be doing about threats and challenges that we face. And I would see the independent nuclear deterrent being a fundamental part of that. Well, Mew and Chris, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. 
If you like the podcast, then please do subscribe. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts to see episodes as soon as they're released. And we also do like those nice positive reviews and ratings. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Harry Shannon. The sound engineers are Breen Turner and Sean McGarity. Until next time, thanks for listening. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.